Hello and welcome to Found. This is TechCrunch's weekly podcast where we tell you the stories behind the startups. It's the most important podcast on the internet. That's the title case. That's our slogan and tagline, as everyone knows. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with the implant to my birth control pill. Oh, man. Listen, I'm Jordan Crook. We have our mechanic. We have to do it. And... I know, but I'd rather be the birth control pill. <laughs> Okay. I don't want to be an implant. You don't need to get too into it. Don't think too much about it expressed as a physical reality. Let's just keep it light. Keep it Let's light. just say we are always protecting each other from That's true. unwanted financial and emotional cost. Listen, this is this is dicey stuff that we're getting into here, but it's for good reason. Because and we're, like what we're doing right now is destigmatizing, talking about this. We're enacting that currently. Totally. Um, open about it but we do a much better job on the podcast this week the actual podcast because we're talking to elizabeth ruzzo from aiden aiden is a company that helps women make the right health decisions for them based on their hormonal state and their genetics to find a birth control option that won't have negative side effects hopefully or we'll have you know, the least amount of negative side effects that they can manage. And that's like the immediate need and product servicing target. But also, Elizabeth is very passionate about just making scientific discoveries in general more inclusive and creating data sets that are more representative of the actual population for scientific research. Whereas most of the ones that exist today, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly white, not really representative of, of the actual human community, right? Yeah. So... Let's go ahead and get right into the episode uh, because she's much more impressive than us rambling here. For sure. Implant. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We were just talking about this before we started recording, but you're our first ever double equity found podcast guest we do a different thing here so hopefully it's not too much retread versus what our equity pals did i we probably will cover some of the same ground like for instance we do want to hear what aiden is and you're the best person to tell us so if you can give us a very high level overview of what aiden is and does that would be great so aiden is a precision medicine company and we have created the first test that's designed to help prevent birth control side effects. So I'm not sure how much you know about the birth control space, but there are nearly 200 options on the market. And the current way that it's prescribed is essentially trial and error. Right. So we're basically bringing science into that selection process. Yeah. I mean, I'm not personally super familiar, but I do know my partner <laughs> has changed depending on adverse reactions or whatever, or like how her body reacts to the things. She's changed it a couple of times. And that, that's what you're talking about, right? It was like you went in yep. and you prescribed a certain kind and then like, oops, this one isn't good. I guess I'll try another one. Luck of the draw. Let's see what happens. Right? Exactly. So what does that test mean? Like, what is that looking at? Is it looking at our blood or? Yes, blood and saliva. So it's an app home tests. We collect a small finger prick of blood that we use to analyze hormone levels and a saliva sample that we use to analyze DNA. 
And then we generate those data in a CLIA certified lab and create a report that looks at your genetic risk for experiencing certain side effects. And then we also match you with a virtual care provider. So you're not just left on your own trying to understand your results. You can actually have a visit, ask questions and get a prescription if you want based on your preference, reproductive goals, and obviously your unique biology. So your doctors can actually write scripts. So I don't have to like take this to my PCP or my gynecologist or anything. I can just stay in the Aiden network for birth control. Yeah, exactly. We've built a full end-to-end precision medicine platform. So from the testing all the way through to the delivery of prescriptions. That's great. It's like a really hard business to build. Yeah. Are you tired? I'm tired. I'm very tired. <laughs> I would be tired. I was like, as you were talking, I was like, and that's a regulatory thing. And that's taking a lot of hiring. I was like, that is. I also hang out with lawyers a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no one warned me about that. Yeah. Jeez. But how did you, yep. what did you set out to want to do? And how did you come to that realization like, to begin with? I mean, in life, I started out thinking I was going to become a professor of human mm. genetics. So I was on that track, you know, went to grad school got my PhD in genetics and genomics, even did a postdoc at UCLA for a number of years, and then started imagining what life outside the ivory tower, you know, could look like. Oh, yeah. It's scary. It's scary. If you if you're inside there, and you think you're gonna stay inside there, it's safe. It's safe in there safe and warm. It's warm. (laughs) You feel like you're doing good no matter what. Yes, you're kind of like ingrained to think that any for-profit corporation is the devil just inherently. Uh-huh. I still so, think that, even yeah. though I work for this <laughs> one. I mean, bad. there's a lot of them that are bad. It's true. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of it was me thinking about what was the problem I wanted to solve. And there were really, throughout my, at that point, 10 plus years of academia, I kept encountering a couple of health inequities that I knew I wanted to work on. One was because of working in genetics in particular, we had this huge bias, especially towards sequencing individuals of European descent, which meant anytime I did a project looking for risk variants in a non-European population, I just had less statistical power to make Mm. the same kinds of discoveries. And it was incredibly frustrating. And so I knew I wanted to work on that. And the other thing I encountered when working at UCLA on autism, autism has this four to one male to female sex bias. So four times as many males as females get diagnosed. And we were trying to understand the biological basis of that difference. And in doing that, it was impossible to ignore the medical research gaps that exist with gender, partly because women weren't required to be included in clinical trials in the US until 1993. Wow. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's really insane. So both of those were things I knew I wanted to work on. And then I sort of came back to also another idea that I'd had, which was a pain point that I'd experienced, which was trying to find the right birth control. Wow. So a lot of those things seem like things that are perhaps problems better solved from within academia, right? But how did you decide, like, this isn't the way to do that work? Because, I mean, I, I had a similar realization, like, oh, there's not a lot of real world things happening in here. It is an echo chamber in the degree that it's often portrayed in media, right? But, like, yeah. coming to that realization is not easy, especially from within it, right? Right. And so part of how I got there was sort of my light bulb moment about the scientific approach we're taking. So basically why I think of us as a precision medicine company, you know, precision medicine is the idea that not one size fits all. We need to be able to tailor diagnostics, treatments, medications. And to do that, you need ideally 
not just genetics, but additional biomarkers. And so sort of the light bulb moment I had was if we could combine these large scale population genomic studies that I'd been working on doing with longitudinal hormone data. So not just looking at a snapshot in time, but trying to measure it over time, that that could make a really big difference and let us look at a bunch of unmet needs, not just birth control, but what birth control let me think about doing is partnering with women throughout a very long longitudinal course. And so part of what made me think about leaving academia to do that was realizing that this direct-to-consumer model really lets you partner with people for potentially a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and doing practical good while you're in that process. Right, like the fact that we can offer something that adds value from the start is what made it feasible at all. So what's the price point? Is one question, like, is that something that is also being democratized here or is that like it's a premium product because we're offering more precision and you don't have to do the trial and error? So the honest answer is it's more expensive than I want it to be. So right now it's about 350, but when you think about it, you're getting a genetic test, hormone test and a virtual care visit. So it really is a high value product. Plus you're saving yourself all that pain and trial and error. But my goal with Aiden, you know, our stated mission is to make scientific discovery more inclusive. And I don't think we can really truly do that at that price point. So we're definitely working on figuring out hopefully with scale and other things, how we can bring that price point down and also partner with nonprofits to try to distribute the kit in a way that makes sense. Well, like what's the history of cost and how has it come down and how does it potentially, you you mentioned scale, but what are like the things that are contributing to that? Yeah. I mean, so the cost of genomic sequencing and genotyping in general has fallen consistently over the last 10 years. So part of what will happen with scale is we can buy the reagents we need in bulk. We can run more samples at a time in a high throughput way. So there's lots of things like that that can help bring down the cost. Is there a way to do something? I'm just like brainstorming here. Sure, please. Is there a way to Are you going to offer product yeah. ideas? No, no, not. I'm not. I've actually never been on birth control. I, that's oh. one of the benefits of being a lesbian. Well, I mean, there are plenty of lesbians on birth control, but anyway. I thought you were going to um, say there are plenty because- of benefits to being a lesbian. <laughs> There also are plenty of benefits to being a lesbian. That's a big part of it. Good point, because birth control is medicine. So there's many other reasons to take yes, this. Yeah. Yes. This is a fun way to launch into my thought, by the way. So you're talking about being able to decrease price by achieving more scale. Has anyone ever thought about like what it would be like to pay back those early customers, right? Like, I like the way that you're talking about partnering with this community, like, oh, we're doing this to partner with you. Mm -hmm. I get something, you get something. And not just like your money, I get like this longitudinal data, right? Is there a way to say like, hey, now, because we've achieved scale, we're bringing our price point down or even to telegraph, like the more people you tell about this, the more quickly we can bring our price down. And like, here's what we'd like to do for you, our early customers. I'm just literally thinking out loud, but I love that. I mean, our pilot customers are getting it for free. So they, uh-huh. they are definitely in on that ground floor. But yeah, I think you're totally right. I think that would be a very interesting model. I hope that there's a lot of people who really believe in our mission and what we're trying to do. And because of that, they are motivated to spread the word. But you're probably also right that a financial incentive wouldn't hurt that process either. Well, who's your like target demographic or who's your core customers? Are these people that have been struggling to find the right birth control over and over and over again? Or are we talking about you know, I have a 14 year old 
girl at home? Are we talking about like mothers talking to you about their kids? What does it look like? What's the breakdown? Yeah, it's a really great question. Women use birth control in the US on average for 30 years. So there's potentially a very large segment that we are targeting. And you talked about two in particular. So one is thinking about right now we're going to market 18 and over, but seven in 10 teens use birth control for managing PMS. So it's very common medication. And it's also a very scary kind of thing to think about. So it's interesting to think about working with moms or dads who want to make sure that their child gets on the right birth control. So that's definitely one segment. But I think you're also right in that for now, the people who are the earliest adopters are going to be the people who have switched a bunch of times, right? Mm -hmm. So 52% of women have tried four or more methods that doesn't even count multiple kinds of the pill. So I think it's those people who are in crisis and or just urgent need of birth control who seem to understand that it's not a science when in fact it could be are going to be the ones to be our earliest adopters. I have a related question that is maybe a dumb question and maybe a man question. <laughs> but like, Ooh, I'm looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, no. Don't, sure, please I'm sitting up go easy seat. on me. <laughs> is there a challenge of like even making your target audience aware of the problem? Like you mentioned, a lot of people haven't even or have used many different kinds of birth control. But is there a sense even among women that like the pill is the pill and that maybe there's not even an awareness that there are different formulations that you can get? I will be totally honest. I didn't even know how many options there were when I started working <laughs> on this. I was truly, truly blown away. You know, my experience was I was prescribed a birth control in my early 20s to help manage another medical condition. There was no explanation given to me as to why that one was selected for me. I had no idea that they, there were so many choices they could have made and that they landed on one. And then I was gaslit by my medical professional on the other end when I was honestly feeling suicidal and thought it was my birth control. And they said, oh, no, no, that, mm. that can't be. And mm. so a lot of it is education around the options, which is, you know, really the way you feel most empowered is to understand what are your choices? What are kind of the pros and cons of each of these? And then there's also education around the possible side effects and just what we're doing, like that there is a better solution out there. And I think one other point I should say, when we think about accessibility and price is also one thing that's different about Aiden's test compared to a lot of other direct to consumer tests is that it's medically actionable. So we've talked to a lot of doctors, obviously we have some of our own who understand the value of this, right? right. They yeah. see that the way the standard of care is now is suboptimal and that if they can have and leverage more information, then that's what they should do. Yeah. So I'm thinking about that a little bit, like talking about the idea of it being actionable. There are people, and I'm I'm probably one of them, right? Where like I've moved a lot as a kid, I moved a lot as an adult, even yep. and like switched primary care, switched gynos, all of those yep. things. And the process of that is terrible. It's I mean, horrible. it's like so, so terrible. And they're asking you about things, and you're like, I have no clue. If, you know, like what do you mean? I don't even know those words. I still don't know my blood type. It came up the other day. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but like I shouldn't be responsible for that information. I don't understand it. Like I haven't been trained in it. I want someone else who I know and trust to be solely responsible for all of that information, which is why I'm super attached to the doctors that I have now. Right. Totally. So like when you offer me a virtual care visit and I've been going to my gyno for whatever, six years and we have a rapport, she knows what's up. I know what's up. And I like, don't want someone else prescribing me something. Right. Like totally. I, I want your test and I want to yeah. take it to her and be like, what do yeah. you think? Like, how does that work? And is there some sort of certification or what, you know, what does that mean? 
yeah, honestly, that's next on the roadmap. We are launching with this full end-to-end solution for many reasons, including that we can have tight line of communication with our providers to get automatic feedback on things like, hey, what question are you getting over and over about this report? How can we make it more clear to people? Like, I think there's inherently a big part of education in what we're doing. And so I think the way that Aiden changes the standard of care is not by staying virtual, right? It's by truly going into clinics, hospital systems, your providers. And so step one will be what you're describing, where the consumer takes it on themselves to say, hey, I really would like to take this test and show it to my provider. How can I do that? And we build a login for that provider to be able to go in and see your result in a secure way as well. So the other question I had about just the, are doctors depending on the network, like, are they incentivized to prescribe certain ones? And does that become a complication and another reason to go to own the whole banana, I guess? I mean, they're kickback laws intentionally, because what you're saying is clearly a big concern. You don't want doctors prescribing stuff because they're paid to do so. It's also the reason why in academia, we got free lunches a lot because those (laughs) those pharma reps come and hold a lunch and it's an educational opportunity but they're not exchanging money, money. And so the way it works from, you know, interviewing dozens of doctors at this point is there are criteria. It's not a complete shot in the dark, but it's mostly a shot in the dark. There's a table from the CDC called the MEC, Medical Eligibility Criteria, that kind of lists out some of the worst contraindications you could have. Like if you're a smoker over 35, if you're on anti-seizure meds, things like that. But it's basically just like in the, like these things have, they cause death. So don't, (laughs) don't do that. Yeah. It's a lot of the worst (laughs) scenarios. Yeah. So the way it works is, you know, a lot of doctors have their go-tos that have worked well in their experience. And they start with that. And that's the beginning of the trial and error process, right? And the burden is on the patient to come back and say, Hey, I'm experiencing this. And I recognized it as being able to like be attributed to my birth control because of the timing X, Y, and Z. And I recognize that that's also not the way that it should be because a bunch of people are really just like, well, I'm experiencing this thing. And I guess that's just cost of doing business. So I'm going to live with it. I think that's a lot of female things, right? Like uh, how common is, what is it? Endometriosis, right? One in 10. Yeah. I remember going to my gynecologist and she was like, how much pain do you experience during your period? And I was like, just the normal amount, you know? And she was like, what is the normal amount? Normal amount is my favorite answer to a medical (laughs) professional and also the one that is consistently like yeah they're like what does that mean i love saying to my gp the normal amount because and then she's like daryl how much is that let's let's put it on a scale of whatever and then i say and she's like that's not how anyone that's not the normal (laughs) you're not normal at all yeah right right (laughs) you know she's like don't say that yeah exactly (laughs) so i mean there's a bunch of stuff i feel like when it comes to women's health that is like you just expect it. Price of right. business, right? Like, exactly. Well, and especially if it's not discussed, it probably comes up more in women's health because the things aren't discussed more generally or historically. They've been kind of like, well, that's a taboo topic or that's something that people shouldn't well, discuss. In and pub- there's also public. the Pete that there are taboo topics for men too, but there yeah. are men who are like, hey, other men, give me money and I'll go right. fix those taboo things. Like, because exactly. I'm a man, I'm your bro, right? And like, right. they go yeah. fix it. And that's a different story for women. And I think birth control in particular is interesting there too, because 
you know, birth control is freedom, right? It's changed our ability to get education and be in the workplace and was, you know, it's almost anti-feminist to talk badly about it. So I think it's only recently that there's been more vocal uprising about, hey, maybe we shouldn't have to deal with this as the status quo. So one of the other questions that I had was around, we were talking about like the next phase, right? Like getting into clinicians, getting into doctor's offices, et cetera. What about into pharmaceutical companies in general? Like this feels like data, if it were at scale, that would be highly, highly valuable to them, right? Because if you're thinking in a dollars and cents framework, then the best way to be the most competitive with one of the 200 birth control products is to try to eliminate as many Mm -hmm. side effects as possible, right? And like understand why are they happening and in what people and like, how can I make sure that the right person always gets my medicine? And yet. (laughs) here we are i mean that has that does not seem to have been the incentives by which they're operating right and why is that because we're talking right now about highly effective methods of contraception that metric is meaning they prevent pregnancy right so they meet those criteria the rest you know you look at that list of side effects it is sometimes quite shocking. They're not optimizing for that. They're optimizing for enough of a different variation that it's patentable. So the incentives are different. But to your point about thinking about partnering, you know, I have no interest in developing drugs. I don't want to be a pharmaceutical company. I want to stick to what I love, which is precision medicine and helping people. We are actively working on thinking about our data sharing policy. You know, we're not in the business of selling data, but if there were an opportunity to partner for sure, with an academic institution or someone else who I felt really could use aggregated anonymized data in a way that would truly help move the needle on women's health, we would consider doing that. And of course, every customer would have the ability to opt in or opt out of that process. I'm really disappointed to hear you say that you're not going to develop any pharmaceuticals because I was thinking, I mean, like, and I need you to answer this question. Why isn't there birth control for men? They're working on it. Um, But the most depressing part is there have been multiple clinical trials that have quit because the men complained of, guess what? Acne, weight gain, and depression. Oh, was it tough on them? Side effects. Yeah, pretty bad. But I mean, like, if I'm thinking that the pharmaceutical companies are, if I'm doing like a most nefarious case, right? It's like, well, if you shared all this data with them directly, like they would probably use it to lock up a patent and then just shelve the thing. Cause like we already spent all the R and D in making this thing that already works fine, works fine by our definition. You can't see my air quotes as an audio podcast, but I did that. Right. It's like, they're much more incentivized to just just defend their existing spend and investment. If they think they can get away with that. It's a horrifying point that I had not honestly fully thought through, but is exactly why I'm very, very wary about who we would partner with in that scenario, right? They need to truly have it baked into any you know, <laughs> agreement that they're not going to do that. I mean, yeah. that would be horrible. Without defending big pharma, I do feel like it's important to say that my partner works for big pharma and is a doctorate of pharmacology. So I'll just put it out there <laughs> before we Listen, get too rough and tumble. They do get the, I'm not, that was just like, if you're being overly cautious, this is something to keep yeah, in mind. Yeah, they could, yeah. you know. I'm sure Elizabeth, many lawyer friends will appreciate the, the, <laughs> all angles. <laughs> the pessimism. Exactly. <laughs> 
Since you're a found listener, I'm going to bet you're also pretty interested in startups and technology. Great news. We're going to give you an offer for 25% off a subscription to TechCrunch Plus. TC Plus is our premium product. And what you get there are deep dive interviews with some of the best startup founders and investors in the industry. You get surveys of different investors in different areas of expertise and geographies. You get market maps of opportunities in new and emerging industries. And you get deep dive looks at some of the hottest startups out there. You can subscribe to TechCrunch Plus at TechCrunchPlus.com. That's probably the easiest way to get there. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, just follow the links for TechCrunch Plus and you'll get a prompt to subscribe. Once you're there, just enter the code, which is found, the name of this podcast, during checkout, and you'll get 25% off a one-year TechCrunch Plus subscription. But I, I want to talk more because you keep talking about, you know, Aiden is a precision medicine company. And it sounds like you have more general kind of ambitions beyond this or, or perhaps other areas you want to explore. And when you were talking about that, too, and like I had a conversation, it was actually at Disrupt, but I was I talked to Ugar Sahin from Biontech and he was talking about the same thing, right? Like Biontech was originally designed as a precision medicine company. What they wanted mm. to do is tailor medicines to the patient and take into account environmental as well as genetic predispositions. And so that it, it is literally like when you get a medicine, it's the medicine for you, the individual mm -hmm. patient, right? Yeah. And that seems like a big, big area of investment and interest. So like, what are your broader ambitions there? And what kind of excites you about that field? I mean, I think what excites me about it is how much green space there is because there have not been enough research dollars going into a lot of these areas. So there's a ton of different directions we could see this going, right? There's some things that are almost very parallel to what we're doing with Aiden, like when you think about menopause and hormone replacement therapy. But I get really excited when I think about things like early diagnostics, for right. disorders like PCOS, endometriosis, uterine fibroids is another one where it's incredibly common, more common than it's even diagnosed. And the later it's diagnosed, the more invasive the treatment and surgery and the less likely that surgery is to work. Mm -hmm. And so the earlier you can get it, the more it has a difference. So basically I'm interested in studying anything where I think we're going to be able to generate a medically actionable outcome, meaning you're actually going to change somebody's life and health. Right. And is, is that something you talk about when you're talking to investors or how do you describe Aiden when you're going out and having those conversations about fundraise? Yeah. I mean, I definitely try to pitch the bigger vision, right? And I think at this point now we've at least proven out that we can build, we have built that first platform and have a product to go to market. And it's almost tying back my own ambition from running wild right. and, and doing right. all the other products I want to do too, before we fully have, you know, product market fit with the birth control test. And we should mention actually just that Aiden is in early access, right? For anybody listening. Yes. So you can go up and you can request early access, but you can't like immediately just sign right up right now. Right. You can't purchase quite yet. How did you come up with the name Aiden? So it is from the Greek monadiki dynami which means unique strength. So I'm I totally think familiar with what did you say? Greek monadic monadiki. So I took the AD from that and dynami. So the YN from the second word. I like it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. It's like also like the name of many kindergartners right now too. It is. I, I know, was going to say right? like a super yeah. hot name. Yeah. I think I suggested it to my sister who is pregnant right now, actually. <laughs> I like it. I mean, that's not the spelling normally, which is no, no, it was probably, with an E, no. I think. Yeah. 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 That's more common. How has it been for you, like the fundraising? Because, you know, your background was academia and then 
you got out of school and then you did a startup, right? Is that basically how it went? Yeah. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So how has that been for you? Like, first of all, I mean, fundraising to start, I guess, but also like building a company, right? And build it being a a founder there. I mean, I think I was a little bit unique in my academic background in that human genetics projects are very collaborative, right? Mm. You need many clinical sites, many people involved. So I'd sort of managed projects and teams before, which is not always the case coming out of academia. But in terms of fundraising, you know, it was hard. I think it was obviously good that I had deep technical expertise. I definitely also got a lot of like, almost this is too good to be true. And somebody else would have done this already. And it's like, well, nobody else has my exact background in precision medicine and actually experienced this pain point. Right. And, you know, I had a question that I wrote my template for taking notes in these meetings at the top of it always said, did they understand the problem? And that was the number one predictor of if they wanted to invest or not. And if it was a male investor, they would tell me, oh, I get this. My wife had that. My sister had that. My partner had that. My mom told me about that. But if they hadn't seen it firsthand, meaning somebody they trusted had told them that that was a pain point for them, they were like, "Mm, I think this is fine. I think doctors know what they're doing and people just figure it out that way. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that would be the default. It's one of those things just like you always see in television and movies or whatever, somebody would be like, well, yeah, this is an important issue. I realized once I had a daughter or whatever, like I I realized like, oh, it's important. And you're like, I wish that didn't have to be the thing that's the realization point. I mean, I'm guilty of this at the start of the thing. I mean, you you would have been on the podcast regardless of whether my partner had that issue or not, I'm saying. But like, I can see how that would be like a very frustrating kind of blocker to come across, right? Because it's not true. I, I, don't, I doubt it's true in the opposite direction. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I bet not, right? <laughs> and you know, it is what it is. There's lots of investors out there. There's lots of good company ideas. You want the investors who get it and believe in you yeah. and see why it's the right thing to bet on. So how many meetings did you have to go? Or like, what was your hit rate like? Oh boy. I don't even know if I ever went back and counted all of that. Yeah. I mean, I went through Y Combinator, which helped accelerate, obviously create that FOMO. I do know that the first couple of checks were really painful and then it was oversubscribed landslide pretty quickly. Nice. So that was good. But getting those first people on board was, was a lot. <laughs> A blur. Was it facilitated from those first people? Like once those first people in, they were making introductions or was it more like you still had to do all the the legwork to get it in? I still had to do a lot of legwork. And luckily we had a lot of interest from Demo Day. So there were a lot of people to respond to. And it was more about just like sequencing and following up with everyone. And then once I had my lead investors, Lux Capital and M13, you know, they really helped make other introductions, especially for like strategic angels and things like that. Yeah, Lux Capital, we should mention, I don't think we have to disclaim, but Danny Crichton is now at Lux Capital, who was on our team. Oh, cool. Disclaimer, Jordan, I don't think it's necessary, but it's just a shout out. That's more of a shout out. Quick shout out to the squad. (laughs) So how about on the other side, on on like being a leader and forming the team, like what was that like for you? What was kind of your major challenges you had to overcome with that? And what else? You mentioned like some of it came naturally because you're already used to working collaboratively, but what kind of like didn't come naturally and did you have to go acquire the skills? What didn't come naturally in leading for me was setting really ambitious 
targets and hitting that balance between setting ambitious targets where people feel disappointed because you're not making them and keeping this sense of like urgency and we're going to be big and we have to move quickly. We did have really incredible luck because of the mission with interest. We have literally hundreds of applicants it's been pretty wild. And so the hard part is honestly figuring out what's the dream team who fits together. And I think we've done a really good job. I'm so happy with the team right now. Everyone gets along, they're collaborative. There are no big egos. It's a really magical time where I know we're going to keep growing and hiring more soon, but this super seven right now is pretty great. Wow. Did you do it all during the pandemic? Yes. It's oh, been wow. all during the pandemic. So when I fundraise, I was the only full-time employee. Wow. So it's been since that raise to grow to the, the team of seven. Obviously we had some contractors and things like that, but. That's something we don't hear that often. Not only solo founder, but solo person at the company when you're out doing your fundraise. <laughs> what kind of questions did you get about that? If any, were people like, well, why don't you have a co-founder? Or like, why haven't you hired a team yet? Or like, was that a thing? Yes, definitely. I mean, I knew it was going to be a thing even when I applied to Y Combinator to the point where I only applied because I had done this summer school thing they had where you could get $15,000 equity free, but you had to apply to the whole thing. And I was like, oh, well, they won't let me in. I'm a solo founder, but let me get this 15000 That sounds good. And then instead I got in and was like, oh, Okay, now I guess I'm like equity. leaving this postdoc and I'm go <laughs> like I'm doing it. So that was a good push off the cliff. And yeah, there were lots of questions and I think skepticism just because it was a big ambitious vision and one person, but I obviously also had like the network and the people in mind. So I would talk about that and advisors and you know who I wanted to bring on and how I was thinking about growing the team, things like that. What did you feel like was your like key thing in fundraising? that really tipped investors over the edge, like had them on the edge of their seat? Is it your experience in genetics and genomics? Is it those advisors you were naming and that network? What did you feel like was the clincher? I think it was probably mostly my deep expertise, like literally right then as evidenced by me being the only person they were betting on me, but it was also the ability to get that pain point storytelling right helping whoever it was understand it and the market size. Like when they're like, what's your market size? I'm like half the population yeah, yeah. Half. <laughs> for 30 years, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Market size is a fun one, right? You're like, listen yeah. to my TAM, but like, it's generally hard to fundraise for products that the demographic is women because mm -hmm. men tend to be investors and they like, just don't get it or don't care or don't understand. But yeah. then birth control seems even more difficult. I don't know why I feel that way. Just something in my gut is like, they understand it even less, right? Like it's yeah. just this thing. And like, I hope you're on the pill or get off the pill. Let's have a baby. And like, that's the about it. Like maybe I'm underselling dudes, but like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think because even the complexity isn't clear, right? The fact that there are 200 and there's a bunch of different types and then there's generic and brand and like, you know, all synthetic hormones and it's just complicated. And so getting in typically a very short amount of time for them to understand the complexity and why you need a complex approach to solve it. All of that is complicated. I would be super curious. And I'm wondering if you two in particular, now I'm giving you product ideas. Tell me. Like, I am curious too, if even once people were interested, if the kind of level of diligence that I was subjected to is the same as male founders or people not working in like a women's health space. My expectation would be that you 
as a health tech company that's doing actual testing, genetic testing, taking people's blood. There's like such a huge reg- regulatory framework that generally a health tech company should get more due diligence in my mind. Totally right? true. So that feels like one step. That's and true. Theranos caused a whole bunch of caution, right? Like among yes. the casualists in the group, right? Like yeah. 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 We're like, let's not take their word for it necessarily. Like my, let's double My check, first right? name doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all, unfortunately. It's the stage we're at in whatever movement is happening, right? Where it's like, I think there are um, many traditional VCs who are older, older men, older white men generally, who are trying to learn something new. And people struggle to learn things that are new when they're older, right? But like, Mm -hmm. and it's not something that is obvious either. It's not like, hey, learn science, right? Which would be difficult enough. But it's like, learn about yourself, which I think is a difficult thing to do. So I think that there's effort being made. I don't want to like shit on everyone, right? I think there's effort being made out of kind of the wrong intentions, which is like, hey, it's really important to LPs now. I'll get bad media attention, blah, 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 right? Like I have Mm -hmm. to do this. And I think there's also some good intention there too, which is like the terrible, like I'm a father of daughters. Oh, I sure hope my daughter, you know, like just a moment of empathy that triggers something as well, which isn't great, but it's something, right? So I would say we're in some weird, almost middle ground to progress and But I think like to agree with Jordan, like we're at that stage where like their door is opening, but it's, there's still so many like inbuilt biases and things that I can confidently say again, without real proof to hand that you are scrutinized more closely than an equivalent male founder. Right. I think it's also, this is like maybe reading too much into it, but I don't think so. Like birth control was like, even its original creation, it was like a moment of like taking power away from men. Right. And it's like a thing that, especially I think for older generation, like, it's just, it's something that they probably don't even realize is there, but like at base, they're going to have a reaction to it that is probably like a negative, like, oh, I don't want to touch that. And I don't know why. And if they really analyze themselves and really went in to investigate why it's like, maybe has something to do with their inbuilt misogyny and how it threatens it or whatever. Right. I'm just thrilled that you were able to get the attention and the oversubscription that you were at the stage you were. And as a solo founder, like it's a terrific story, given how much it's kind of stacked against you even still, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you don't need us to tell you to be proud of it, but that it is a really astounding achievement to yeah. raise as a solo founder in health tech for birth control. <laughs> it's just like a stacked on stacked on stacked, right? Like, and, and the business you've built as well, incredibly complicated. Well, thanks. It doesn't hurt to hear it because I don't have time to remind myself. So thank well, you. <laughs> that's why you should come on TechCrunch podcasts more often. That's what Maybe. we do on these. <laughs> I will try. Yes. Maybe that's one way we could, one final question we could ask is like, how do you balance your life out as a founder? I mean, you're in like proper medicine health, but like mental health is a big issue for a lot of founders and entrepreneurs. Like, how are you dealing with that? I am trying to make time to meditate and go for walks, both of which are the first to go out the window when something hits the fan, (laughs) but it's very important and do yoga and have a therapist and all that good stuff. Cause you're right. If you're not taking care of yourself, I think it's very clear how easy it is to burn out. So trying hard to stay balanced and make time for family and friends too. 
but that also goes actually that goes out the window before <laughs> before the meditation <laughs> at least it's there to go out the window right as opposed to already gone so, exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> all right thanks very much elizabeth it's been great talking to you and yeah you, you have to participate in our little weird therapy hour that we do yeah. here too so i think it counts towards it treating yourself <laughs> definitely this was fun it was such a pleasure thank you both so that was our episode with elizabeth and aiden i really liked elizabeth the topic and the company and the mission is all super great and i'm for it behind it but I just like also really like Elizabeth. Yes. And I think I like her attitude every time that we like, I have a weird question or I have a really off the wall thought. She's like, yeah, let's do this. Right. Like very hands on, ready to go, ready for anything, which I appreciate. I also think it's so impressive that she fundraised as herself, as the company, yeah. right? Like not even with a team, solo founder, scientist lady, like super cool. I I'm, yeah, we Big regularly fan. have, I mean, basically every episode of this features a person who is more impressive than us in just about mm. every possible way. But this one every really level. takes the kick for that, I feel like. I mean, they keep getting better, these founders. They come on. Or do we they... keep getting worse, Jared? Wow, I didn't even think about that. But it probably is both. It probably is both. Now that you bring it up, I'm getting worse. I'm face palming as we speak about how much worse I'm getting. Yeah. I'm just so impressed. We didn't really talk about this that much, but like, imagine just like, oh, it's okay. School's done. What am I going to do with my life? I need this. This problem needs solving. I'm just going to go do it. I'm going to build a company to do it. And I'm going to go get the money to build that company. And I'm going to do it all on my own. I'm going to get into YC and like all these things, right? It's just like an unimaginable level of ambition that I think is really, really low. Well, the business right? itself too, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not even like she was in academia. I was like, I'm really smart. You know, like I know some people, maybe, maybe not. I'm going to just go start this company that like, I don't know, says yo to people when you push a button, right? She's right. like, I'm going to go create a precision medicine company that helps sort out 200 different kinds of birth control. And I'm going to hire out like a virtual visit business as well so that there are actual doctors who are prescribing things so my customers can take action yeah. right then and there. And, the, you know, like the... Like that's yeah. really hard to build and takes a lot of balls. Good for her. Yeah. Super hard business. But then also like a problem that is like something else that like came across and that is totally sympathetic is just how obvious this problem is to the people who encounter it and like how frustrating it must be to just not have anybody attempting to do anything to kind of improve that situation you know she had her story about having suicidal thoughts that were a direct result of like an interaction with the birth control medicine she was on and then being gaslit by her physician right and like you know our producer Maggie has a note that a friend had a, a similar kind of experience, right? And then I also talked to my partner and she had the exact same experience where like her physician ended up saying like, no, these things that you're imagining, that you're imagining them effectively, right? Yeah, like, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Whatever it is, get over it. Yeah. She described that and then we were able to find like three supporting examples of it immediately with a zero effort. No, like organically, we're like, hey, by the way, there's right. this thing that happens with birth control where your doctor oh, not even gaslights that. you. It was yeah. just like, oh, this is the person I had on. This is the topic we discussed. And then that was like volunteered. Yeah, exactly. It's very organic, the kind of collective agreement on 
how all this goes. And I think we talked about it a little bit on the podcast and it makes me like sad, but also hopeful that Elizabeth's building what she is, but it's like, my women have been told that's the cost of doing business, baby. You know, like there's so many things. It's not just like birth control or women's health. There's like a million things where you're just like, that's how life is. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, it's like deal with it. That thing is unchangeable or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. is... Yeah. And she was like, I don't think it should be unchangeable. Right. Like, what if I changed it? Right. And that's like awesome. We need more people like that in general. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like the other larger mission too. like talk about having a startup that has like terrific, just like mission alignment and double mm -hmm. bottom line mechanics. Oh, we're also going to solve this disparity in terms of data sets for scientific research, like available information, right? It's like, that is so good to be able to do that. And then to be able to do it while providing a valuable service at the same time, right? That kind of alignment is doesn't come along too often. So it must be great for Aiden in terms of recruitment. And, and, and I just like the wave of not just women's health, but like health tech businesses that are kind of breaking down these stigma barriers around what we talk about and what we don't. Cause like, if you can't have the first step, you know, of having, I mean, I made a joke in the intro about like, you know, pregnancy, but like birth control is used for treating all kinds of things. Right. right? Like it is a very common, when we talk about TAM, Talk about a massive TAM. It's like you or someone you know, right? For sure. Like one out of two people probably, you know, is on birth control. It's a massive TAM. And yet, like, it's not something that we're talking about very regularly or with any compassion, maybe. Step one, right? And stuff can change from there. So I, I appreciate what Elizabeth's doing, but also just in general, like how health tech is kind of started talking about things, put them into a colorful brand, put a commercial on TV, put a, you know, like have a social media presence and let it be part of the conversation. Yeah. We talked previously with founders who are like, kind of like building new communities around this where communities didn't exist before. Right. So yeah, it is a great and promising trend, but yeah, that was our episode with Elizabeth. I recommend everybody go check out Aiden and find out more about that. And I also recommend everybody Say that we're the best on all all internet platforms, wherever and you're. How many stars should uh, they? Use? Well, no one knows. No one knows how many stars <laughs> there are. Unknowable. <laughs> the review system. It's like, yeah, it's an unknowable fact. But what you can do is just like start a movement, maybe a groundswell movement around conversation around found the podcast. That's probably mm -hmm. a good idea. We should stop talking about found with so much stigma, you know. Yeah. Well. <laughs> dicey again. Dicey intro. Dicey out. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited and produced by Maggie Stamets. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us at 510-936-1618 and leave us a voicemail. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>